0: Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast.
1: Welcome back to Endurance Innovation, everyone. And I am happy to also welcome back Andrew, who is fresh off his experience His uh, apparently very eventful and toasty experience (laughs) with uh, Ironman Maryland. Andrew, welcome back.
0: Thank you. And I think fresh is the wrong descriptor, descriptor to use for me, Richard.
1: <laughs> yeah, fair point. Uh, well, you know, in body, maybe not in spirit then.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, a, it was a very eventful race. And I was talking to my coach afterwards and he said, you know, what's well, an Iron Man if it's not eventful, right? You, you've got to have some kind of story that comes out of it. So um, there were plenty of stories in this case. So more than enough to fill a full podcast, I think.
1: Wonderful, and yeah, and uh, you know, I, I agree with what uh, with what Alex said. They're not supposed to be easy, right? They're you <laughs> do them. It's like it's like you know Kennedy's speech about going to the moon. You know, you do this not because it is easy, but because it is hard. So, yeah, I, uh, I I'm with you there. And I I don't really want to put this on the same
0: challenge level as going <laughs> to the moon. Um, although maybe me completing an Iron Man that I'm happy with is up there with <laughs> going to the moon. So
1: uh, there you I was just gonna say, still, uh, still chasing that dream. There's always, it's always, you know, it's always good to have something to chase after. Well, you don't want to peak too early, right? <laughs> of course, then you can go home. <laughs> um, okay, so let's let's uh, launch right in. And uh, you and I chatted a little bit offline about how we wanted to structure this chat, um, and uh, we decided that chronological would make the most amount of sense. So, why don't you tell us about what your um, what your arrival. Uh, look like and uh, the, the couple of days before the race. And specifically, I'm super curious to know if you felt the the altitude effects that we talked about on our getting high episode coming from around 13 or 1400 meters at, in Cochrane, Alberta, down to sea level in uh, Maryland. Yeah. So there's uh, a bunch of different things that I want to
0: mention for leading up to the race. So altitude is one of them. Um, taking a step actually backwards um, for someone who hasn't done an Ironman before, there's a lot more logistics than doing a local race. So first of all, very um, true. Yeah. So first of all, uh, finding an Airbnb or a hotel, uh, you have to look a long ways in advance for popular races. So I recently signed up for Penticton for 2020 and within hours of signing up, um, there was nothing available in, in Penticton. So I had to go 20, wow. 25 minutes away to get a reasonable price one. Of course, there are some that are like exorbitant prices, but uh, um, I'll let someone else take advantage of those deals. Um, so, uh, but what happened to me that was really frustrating was my initial Airbnb reservation cancelled. And this is the downside of Airbnb is there's no real recourse. So they said there was maintenance. I think it was just they had forgotten it was The race and they wanted to go back and relist it for higher money Mm. um but anyway so whatever reason they canceled and i was stuck a month out from the race looking for a place to stay so i did get something that was actually much closer um quite a bit more expensive so instead of 75 bucks a night it was like 250 a night
1: Um, Um, and it was a
0: a camper van or not a camper van but like a, a trailer um not bad um It had air conditioning which was the important thing um but yeah that was kind of how it started off was just this little bit of frustration around accommodations um but yeah i I arrived without without issue the flights were on time all my luggage made it so that really wasn't a problem i made it down to our accommodations and and that actually went pretty smoothly so i was i was happy with how that went um immediately on arriving um there were a couple things i noticed one that it was really, really hot. Uh, So it was like 30 degrees, um, very high humidity. And I'd been used to, well, recently in Calgary, it's actually, well, (laughs) I came back to a giant snowstorm uh, at the end (laughs) of September. So that puts things into into context there. So I didn't really have a lot of heat acclimation that I had done in preparation for this, which uh, may have come into play later. Um, Yeah, so I arrived, got my bike set up, went out and did some training rides. Um, And on the the training ride, um, we like I was with my parents there, so they were kind of doing the Sherpa duties for me, we did a a course recon. And getting out to the wildlife reserve part of the course, uh, there was about four to six inches of water for two to three hundred meters of of, uh, stretch on the road. so not really traversable by tri bikes or any bikes, <laughs> barely <laughs> with cars. Um, so I've got some good pictures. I'll actually post, or I'll, I'll send them along to be posted on the uh, the course or not the course notes, <laughs> uh, the, the the show notes. Yeah, still awesome. thinking of university for some reason. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so that was that was kind of how things started. Was this this feeling of like, what the hell are they going to do here? Because it's basically swampland. You can't you can't clear off the road because the water level is higher than the road. Yeah, it's
1: got nowhere to go. Um,
0: so it just plugs back in. Exactly, yeah. So I brought this up in the, the pre-race briefing. and They said, oh, yeah, we'll just uh, redirect the course, so don't worry about it. And they did. Right. Yeah, so um, so that was kind of all the pre-race stuff. So it was, uh, or at least the, the initial preparation. And it was, yeah, a few surprises there. Um, and then I thought, okay, the day before the race, you know, i got to get acclimated to the water, see what it's like um and it's it's a brackish inlet so you get this mixture of salt and fresh water so it's a little bit uh saline not too bad it's not something that you know you get in your mouth and you feel disgusting just because of how salty it is you don't feel sticky when you get out Uh but it's got that little bit of flavor to it um what is also in the water is a ton of jellyfish (laughs) so (laughs) so was this a wetsuit legal swim? it, it was but it was barely i think it was like one degree Fahrenheit under the limit, so they had it listed as seventy four point nine the day before the race and 76 I think is the cutoff for what's illegal. Um, so okay. it was pretty close, but I think they always do favorable measurements on race day, um, so especially when you have lots yeah, of jellyfish especially
1: for I was gonna say that a little bit of body armor
0: doesn't hurt. Yeah, so I was thankful to have that um, but going out on my training swim, there were a lot of people in the water, but not many people swimming. So everyone was standing around saying, I see a jellyfish there. I don't really want to get in the water. Uh, so the, the funny thing was they all concentrate, like they get blown up to the shore, I think. And as a result, the hardest part or the most dangerous part is, uh, is that initial entrance into the water. So once you get out, they're actually not that bad. Um, so I didn't get a sting until i started coming back in so i did my swim and then i was coming back in and it felt like i swam through uh kind of sticky seaweed and then that sticky seaweed started to burn (laughs) so uh so i got a nice sting on my left arm because i use a sleevel sweatsuit and then uh, that was kind of how i started things off and just like in in hindsight i think getting the sting before the race was actually one of the best things that could have happened because then I know it's not the end of the world i know that i don't need to panic and that it'll go away um it didn't affect me much but it did affect other people like it basically gave me what looked like razor burn with kind of the um kind Mm. of a dimpled pimply surface on my arm and it turned a little bit red and it was kind of
1: a combination of itchy and tingly for a little while um but it So wait, this 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 happened. You got stung in your practice swim before the race, or or coming in from the swim in the race? No, this is
0: all before the race, uh, before race day. Oh, okay. So I I basically got this out of the way early. So I was trying to do the warm up, and I got uh, literally got stung for it. Um, So, but yeah, the the best part was finding out that it wasn't the end of the world. Like I didn't have to panic. Um, And under those circumstances, like if someone is allergic, it's better for them to know under more controlled circumstances than under the mayhem of the race. Uh, and it took some of the panic and the worry out of it. So I, I at least felt a lot better knowing that going into race day. Uh, cool. Okay. so strategy wise, um, I'll just go down kind of what my goals were and, uh, and, and how it played out. So for the swim, I was, my goal was to do a sub one hour swim. And I felt like I could have, Possibly done it, but strategy came into play there. Um, my goal for the bike was to hold between 195 and 200 watts, and then my goal for mm-hmm. the run was a five-minute per kilometer pace. So all of those started out very well, and all of them ended not quite as well. Um, so on the swim, uh, getting getting to race day now, the what we had discussed before was actually if I seed myself after, then I can take advantage of legal drafting while you're passing someone. And if you have a large field of people to pass, you can take advantage of this quite often and actually gain quite a bit of time.
1: So now you're talking about the bike. So this was, this was your strategy to seed yourself back in the swim. So you would have more cyclists to pass. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of where my mind was at. So I, I said, okay, when I did Tremblant, I
0: didn't have much issue at all with traffic. Um, and, you know, if, if I seat myself back, it's not going to be a ton of traffic. I'll be able to, to, to swim through people without too much of an issue. Trombla had a nice little stoplight system where they let six athletes go at a time and they had a red light that would hold you in between. And then 10 seconds later, it would let another six go. Um, what they said here was they would do three athletes at a time. But what that really meant is three gates that they just push people through as fast as they can. (laughs) So it was three athletes at a time, but every half second or so. Um, So I seated myself targeting like uh, an hour to an hour five swim. I seated myself with the, um, initially I was going for the 110 to 120 and I kind of got bumped back to the 120 to 130 people.
1: Oh, Um, the, the folk's much slower than you then.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and it's still, like, it's definitely respectable swim time. But uh, when you get that delta in speed, it actually becomes difficult because you're coming up on people so fast um, that it's just difficult to avoid them because you don't have a chance to feel their kicking before you're right on top of them. And the last thing, because I hate it when people are swimming over me, the last thing I want to do is swim over someone else. So, so I was polite. trying to be respectful. <laughs> yeah. Well, that'll come into play later. It's kind of <laughs> okay, funny, fair. actually. But uh, <laughs> um, so... Yeah, the, the issue I ran into was really um, because I had seated myself so so low, it was difficult to avoid a lot of the people. So I think this is where I cost myself some time in the swim. Um, I probably made it up in the bike, but since I was going for that sub-one-hour swim, um, that didn't really help me hit that goal. Right. Um, just because there, there was one instance I remember where uh, basically there were six people wide that were swimming the same pace, and I was behind and in the middle of them. So that was that was tough to deal with. And that's where you lose a lot of time going out of your way.
1: That's when you have to kind of like, you know, you you have to leave your niceness at home and, uh, and kind of worm your way between them. Apologize mentally (laughs) or while breathing. (laughs) Give them a, a sorry splash. sorry splash.
0: That's part of the Canadian lexicon, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that, that's basically what I did. I found a small gap and then I just did a little surge to kind of sneak up between them and tried not to clobber them. Um, and, and just, you know be reasonably nice about it. Um so yeah, the the swim like aside from dodging traffic went pretty well. I did get another jellyfish sting, uh which again felt like you're swimming through seaweed and then it starts to hurt a little bit. So this was on my right arm this time instead of my left that it had happened on uh during the warm-up mm. swim. And I think I also got a little bit on my nose, but it was just maybe the remnants of a tentacle that had been been ripped off by someone else. <laughs>
1: Poor jellyfish. Uh, no wonder they're pissed off. They're, they're getting like, you know, thousands of humans swimming through them.
0: Oh yeah. They're just trying to trying to have a nice meal. Yeah, so
1: procreate or something, yeah.
0: Well, yeah, I don't know if I do that in a field of swimmers, but uh, if that's up to them, then mm-hmm. maybe they're more more exhibitionist than I. Yeah. So. yeah.
1: Yeah, you still had a pretty respectable time, though, in uh, coming out of the water.
0: Yeah, I think I did a 105, which um, was almost bang on my tromblant time, which which also had its own issues with the fog. So I've had two swims that were mildly compromised, and I feel like I could have gone a little bit faster. Still, don't know if I would uh, would have hit that uh, the one hour mark. I would have been close, but maybe not there. So next race. Um, so the only other notable thing that happened is, um, (laughs) this is where psychology comes into play. My hand hit something under me that I couldn't see because the water was dark and Mm. I hit it on the far end of the course and I'm pretty sure it wasn't the ground and I'm pretty sure it wasn't a jellyfish, (laughs) but I have no idea what it was other than that. And when, like, because it's uh, fairly turbid water, you can't see much more than maybe, maybe a meter in the water, if that. Um, so I couldn't see anything. I hit something. And then about two minutes later, I hit something again, uh, when it should have been deep enough to, <laughs> to take a big fishing ship or something. Cause it was getting pretty far out in the channel there. Right. Um, and at that point, man, like I, I will admit I have a bit of a phobia for things in the water. Like if I'm swimming, say in a lake in, in Ontario where it's kind of murky water, you're swimming along, you think it's nice and deep. And all of a sudden there's a submerged branch that's a foot under you. Yeah that gives me like a near heart attack, um, just because it's unexpected. And I just, for whatever reason, I don't like things in the water. I either want to be able to see nothing at all or see everything. So yeah. Anything in between just freaks me right out.
1: No, I think that's, um, I'm sure that's genetic, right? That that's gotta be some, some kind of genetic adaptation, like things that are, that are, you know, coming out at you from the dark, they, we are programmed for that flight, instantaneous fight or flight response. Um, and I think you are, you're certainly in the majority there. Yeah. It freaks me out too. Okay. As
0: long as it's not just me, it's almost cathartic
1: expressing my fears in, in
0: a public setting like this, this. This
1: is a safe space.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I just won't read the comments for judgment. It'll be better than YouTube, I'm sure. <laughs> Probably. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I, the best I could do is just put it out of my mind and when I'm racing, I find that I'm a lot less affected by those things because the competitive nature takes over the, uh, I guess the lizard part of my brain. That's just getting freaked out the fight or flight. Um, so I'm more in fight mode than flight, Mm -hmm. Um, but anyway, so I, I kind of put it out of my mind, uh, continued on. Um, yeah. And, and I had a pretty good swim and I would say like the altitude, I think I managed, at least my watch said it was a little bit long. Um, Again, I don't know if the measured course versus the, the watch GPS course, which one would be more accurate. I did a 135 pace based on my watch and a 142 pace based on the, the course. So in reality, I think it was somewhere in between.
1: Yeah. So GPS, obviously, you know, as soon as you're more than an inch underwater, you lose the signal. And so you're getting at best um, maybe 30 to 40% of the, of the time your watch is above the water depending on your stroke. And so you're getting only that brief window for your, for your watch to acquire a signal and like pinpoint you on the map. So there's a lot of, you know, post-processing going on or well, in situ processing going on in the, in the device to figure out exactly where you are. So GPS tracks for swimming are notoriously not super accurate. Um, obviously some devices are better, better than others, but, uh, um, it's always tough, you know, it's always tough as an athlete or as a coach to look at a swim track and say, you know, do I, am I just crap at sighting or was the GPS track off? You know, it's a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit of a guess. Okay. Tell us about, uh, T1. T1. Um,
0: so it was pretty standard. Um, they had a lot of vinegar for the jellyfish thing. So it really smelled like you were running through some kind of salad dressing, uh, so that was a bit of a unique experience. Uh, but other than that, like it, it was a smoothie one. So I had no issues there. Um, Does it help? Does the vinegar help? I didn't personally use it. So no. um, I, I smelled enough of it. I didn't want to be smelling like that as well. So, <laughs> I, and I knew that I wouldn't react badly to the jellyfish things. And that's where, um, that's where I think the, the experience in the pre-race swim helped out a lot, just because I could put my mind at ease knowing that, yeah, it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but I'll get over it um right. and then i could just ignore that part of the, the transition and, and not worry about it yeah so got changed uh dropped off my bag which i'll give you a little bit of foreshadowing it's the last time i ever saw it um Uh-oh. yeah <laughs> it's more on that later uh so yep went out on the bike um, the course is super flat and fast um the the weird thing was they had changed it the night before and not updated any of the maps so you were kind of on your own nothing none of the turns were really familiar the first couple were the same and then you were just off on a new course so really you were at the whim of the, the race director so there was this big out and back section that they had added and when i started seeing a couple people go by with numbers i was thinking like there's no out and back here what's what's going on um, but there was maybe a 10, 15 K section at the start that you, you just go out and then head back down the same road. So that was, that was a surprise for me. A little bit, a little bit weird psychologically when you're not expecting it and you see it thinking yeah. like, okay, I'm on the I'm on the right road, but I'm on the wrong direction. So <laughs> <laughs> what is going on? Yeah. But was it well-marked? It, it was well-marked and it was well-traveled. So I knew that I was going in the right direction. Um, okay. yeah, so there were no major issues there. Okay. How'd you do with your power targets? Uh, So the first lap went great. Um, I was bang on power. I was actually having to hold myself back a little bit because I had my power average creeping up and I just said, okay, you know, settle in, ease it back. My heart rate was basically where I expected it to be. So 154, 155 is kind of where my aerobic threshold seems to be. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was just kind of sitting on the edge of that. Maybe like a touch high, but a lot of that comes down to Um, just the extra adrenaline from race day so
1: for for context for folks um, when Andrew says aerobic threshold he doesn't mean his anaerobic threshold which is what we typically talk about when we talk about you know FTP or threshold power so um, I mentioned this a little bit uh, I believe in our metabolism episode, but um, yeah. So this is the kind of number where you can you can pretty much sit at all day. It's correlated to uh, optimal sort of fat combustion. Um, so it's a very good place to be to be racing an Ironman, um, in, uh, Ironman bike leg. I just didn't want folks to think that you were sitting at FTP, Andrew. I definitely was not. Yep. <laughs> that would have been a very uncomfortable race. Oh, no, a very short race. Yes, well, or very
0: long, depending on how you look at it. That's true. start out very quick end up very slow um but no the, the first lap went fantastic like it was beautiful conditions. so it was slightly overcast it was still pretty hot it was like 24 25 degrees at this point um and then it wasn't very windy uh flat course nice and smooth uh feeling great um i was sticking on my nutrition plan And everything was going great. And I was averaging, I think my first lap, I averaged around 37 kilometers an hour, which is like above actually where I wanted to be. Um, so that was really encouraging. Um, the second lap is where things started to fall apart. (laughs) So, uh, so it started off with, um, and I think this is, this comes down to maybe lack of planning or just lack of interpretation of my own plan. Um, but basically, I started taking a lot of water from aid stations. And one of the challenges I had was I, I had bought a Gatorade bottle and filled it with the F2C mix that I was using. Um, but it didn't have a squeeze lid on it. So it was really hard to fill up my integrated Ventum bottle. So instead, I was putting, um, I was putting the water bottles that I was picking up at aid stations. So every aid station, I got at least one water bottle and I would either pour it down my back to keep myself cool or I would drink a little bit. And I think even though I went through my mixed bottle, I think I was starting to take on a lot more water by the second lap and not as much nutrition. And that started to lead to kind of a slow bonk that happened or slow just lack of carbohydrate.
1: Sure. So your plan when we talked last about this is you were going to fill the the Ventum integrated bottle, the you know fourteen hundred milliliters, with a concentrated F two C mixture, and drink and fuel that way, and then take water from aid stations for, for you know for water for hydration. Is that? Did you change that plan?
0: Yeah. Uh, so that was mostly what I did. The saddle mounted bottle that I had, uh, so the one with the screw on lid, that was yeah. also F two C. So I had basically two sources oh, okay. of F two C and no sources okay, okay. of water. Got it. Um, and then. I just, I got through that. I think I was consuming it faster than I had expected. And I seem to be able to handle a pretty high carbohydrate load. Um, so this is something I actually want to experiment with more. And it could be that my body is just more anaerobically tuned and I would love to do some of the inside testing over the, kind of the off season to figure out.
1: We should do it. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. That'd be another good kind of race report. Um, but if, uh, or well, you know what I mean? Not race report, but, uh testing human guinea pig report yes Um, but yeah i think i just consume carbohydrate faster than kind of the standards and i know talking to cody beals like he said he has a great tolerance for being able to ingest a lot of carbohydrate and i think i might be up there as well because i didn't have any stomach discomfort um but i actually found i bonked later on and i ran out of energy and that was interesting um, that was the the real that was the start of things falling apart like i just
1: do you know how many calories you had total on board, like between those two those two bottles? Like how much you know of that uh, glycodurance? Uh, yep. Yeah. Uh,
0: so I had in the Ventum bottle, I had basically twelve scoops, which is about twelve hundred calories. Okay. Um, and if you're doing four hundred calories an hour, that should be around three hundred or sorry, three hours. And then yeah. I had the other saddle-mounted bottle, which I only had maybe a third of it. And I was trying to pour it in, but I ended up dropping it before an aid station, like just at the, I was trying to fill it up as I was going through the trash zone. So I okay. fell out in the trash zone, but I just, because it didn't have the squeeze top, I just couldn't fill up my integrated bottle. And that's, that was kind of the, the, the first step of things unraveling.
1: Right. Yeah. Cause like four, so 400 calories an hour is, is the, you know, it's technically above the maximum, um, that, uh, that. People are supposed to be able to absorb, but you could probably get pretty close, like 350, 360. Um, And if that's, you know, if that's what you were actually drinking, then yeah, you'd you'd run dry in about, you know, in about three hours and... uh, you still have some time on the bike after that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Unfortunately, I did. Um, and lots of interesting things happened there. Uh, so okay. the, bonk, the bonk was the first thing. And that actually coincided with the wind picking up. So I ran into this weird psychological problem where um, the first section of the bike course, is, or the loop anyway, is a really like a headwind section. Even on the first lap, it was a bit of a headwind, but it really picked up on the second lap. Uh, it picked up so much that there was someone who was cleaning up their fields, uh, because it was going through cornfields, but they had uh, gone through and harvested all the corn, but it was all the chaff that was left over. And they were kind of cleaning that up into piles, and it was kicking up so much dust that it just felt like it coated my mouth and my throat.
1: Uh,
0: And you couldn't see anything. It looked like a tornado coming through. Uh, So when you're going into a wall of that, (laughs) that's a little tough psychologically. Uh, So you get this headwind, which is just a little bit tougher to deal with, Um, starting to bonk as well. And like I noticed my power numbers were dropping and my RPE was going up yep. and that that all happened at once and I think it just at just what point in, at
1: what point in that race was that like kilometer or time what it was just after I picked up
0: the uh, uh, special needs bag so it was actually 110 kilometers in um, okay. but yeah I'd just gotten a special needs bag and the first 110 kilometers I'd done the 37 or just under 37 kilometer an hour average so like I was super happy with how things were going. And then, uh, yeah, and this started to happen and my power just kept dropping and I wasn't feeling great. Um, and I could feel just that, that bonking feeling where it was just kind of empty and shaky and just something lacking. So I would like to experiment in the off season with like even higher carb load. Um, and it could be just that maybe my body's not digesting it. It's just going right through
1: me. Um, I don't know that you needed to higher carb intake rate. I mean, it sounds like you, you probably went through that bottle at about the right, uh, the right pace, uh, I would assume, but you just didn't have enough on board or you weren't taking on, you know, you, your plan was, was to keep everything on board and you just didn't have enough. of Uh, that's what it sounds like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like I was saying, because it was less accessible in those screw tops, um, I focused more on water and then the second half, like maybe I was at the right rate initially. And then that second half, when I started to take on more water, it just kind of, that didn't give me the carbohydrate fuel load that I needed. Uh, yeah, and, no, obviously yeah, not. Power, power dropped, started feeling like crap. Uh, and then the, the really interesting but problematic thing happened actually at an aid station maybe about two-thirds of the way through. Um, so <laughs> this is where the apologies come in. Uh, but someone was going to the porta-potties, and she was coming kind of from the outside of the lane. And I was just grabbing a water bottle right at the end. So she cut across, and I guess she had mentioned slowing, um, but I was focused on getting a water bottle, and I was saying, you know, water to the volunteer. So lots of stuff going on. So she cut in front of me, um, and I had one hand on the base bar, and like all, I did everything I could to not hit her, but I kind of went ass over tea kettle and uh, ended up with a bit of road rash and like. Bike wasn't damaged, unfortunately. That was the
1: most. Important I was going to say that's the yeah the, the most important thing was was my most important question was going to be is the bike okay?
0: Yeah, and I took the fall for the bike. Um, I made sure to cushion that,
1: its well. as, so. as you should. <laughs> not not with your head, but with like uh, any other part of your body. I think that's that's those those are the priorities: our head, bike, everything else. Yep. Yeah. So I just damaged my shoulder, and my knee, and my
0: wrist, uh, and my head. But, uh, the head and the bike were okay. Perfect. Uh, Happy to hear. <laughs> but so here's the really cool thing from a psychological or even an evolutionary aspect. After I got on the bike, I felt fresh. Like it was the adrenaline. Um, but yeah, like it was that initial like confusion and I was very apologetic and I said, you know, it's your fault. Like in hindsight, yeah, maybe it was, it was probably mostly my fault. Um, she was probably no, getting- it's her
1: fault. if she's, if she is cutting across, she needs to do a shoulder check to make sure that nobody's coming through that. That's yeah. if you're, if you're changing lanes, whatever, whether you're driving or cycling, it's on you to make sure that there's nobody coming up from behind you in the lane that you're changing into. So I would, I think firmly the blame is on this other athlete here
0: okay and that could just be my recollection of the events it could have been much more clear-cut than that in one way or another but uh you know things with in the heat of the moment things always get mixed up in your memory so but I, I I don't want to go out and specifically point fingers and i did apologize like she was she was very apologetic herself she said oh you know i said slowing things like that but uh i said no no it was my fault i was focused on the water and i should have been looking around a little bit more but anyway she wasn't hurt didn't hit her uh fortunately because the last thing i would want to do is if it was my fault ruin someone else's race on at the same time Mm -hmm. um so i'm glad that didn't happen but uh yeah i did land kind of funny but even despite that getting back on the bike um yeah i felt fresh again and that was probably the adrenaline but it was like the bonk was essentially gone Um, Mm -hmm. and i took that opportunity when i was stopped to actually Dump out some of my saddle-mounted bottle and uh, and fill up my integrated bottle, which actually gave me more access to nutrition as well.
1: So a so little bit. by this bit point, it, you still had you still had that saddle bottle with the FTC? Um,
0: yeah, I did. So that was uh, there's a little bit left in there, um, yeah. but it was just inaccessible. It was hard to get at because of the lack of screw top. Uh, and that was just because I couldn't find those screw tops at the store. So
1: right. yeah, you always got to bring a few bottles with you. Just a few of the regular bike bottles.
0: Yeah. yeah. So I think next time I'm going to bring bring up her, um, buy a whole bunch of really cheap disposable ones before the race, yep. because, uh, the ones like the, the water with the screw top that I could find were the wrong diameter and they wouldn't fit in my bottle holder. And then right. the other ones were, uh. Yeah, not the, just the, the screw top type, so not the nozzle. But um, anyway, so, yep, I kind of rectified everything, and actually my power went up quite noticeably for the rest of the lap. Still not yes. where I was hoping, but um, it uh, it was definitely better, and the RPE was lower. So that was kind of cool, actually, to see that an accident can essentially refocus you and and give you that, uh, that extra ability to, to get back in your game.
1: So I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you were truly bonking because I was kind of doubting that in the begin to begin with. Because um, if you were doing such a bang up job of of fueling for, let's say, the first three four hours, you're not going to like as soon as you stop that fueling, it's not going to you know, it's not as if you're going to run out of glycogen immediately. You have you know, let's say. Sixteen hundred calories or so, or maybe even up to two thousand calories stored in your in your in your body, in your working muscles. It's going to be less, but whatever. It's still you know it's still a good amount of stored um, carbohydrate fuel. Uh, so I'm wondering if um, maybe it was it was something other than bonking, because what you you know the the what what adrenaline does is it releases it, it gives you ready ready access to that carbohydrate. But if it's if it's been exhausted, then you're not getting it. So I suspect that you still, you still had some, some glycogen storage. And I think when, uh, and I'm totally gonna, I'm, I'm I'm hazily remembering how this works, but I think adrenaline releases uh, liver glycogen, which is actually typically not very accessible during exercise because it's not, glycogen doesn't get transported from like the liver to the working muscles very efficiently. So when you need it, when you're working hard, that isn't happening. But if you, you know, you stopped because you have to obviously get back on your bike. And with all that adrenaline, perhaps you got a bit of a uh, a glucose hit from the the liver glycogen being uh, being uh, me- metabolized and uh, and released and uh maybe that's what maybe just kickstarted the rest of your the the rest of your meta- metabolic pathway i don't know i mean i'm i'm totally guessing here but uh, i suspect that's what happened but i don't think that you were completely glycogen depleted it just doesn't sound possible both from like you know a biochemistry perspective and also from the effect that you describe having gotten on the bike and then feeling fresh yeah that's that's actually a really good point and an interesting analysis as well
0: and I think because I was very close to maybe what my maximum uptake would be um it may not have been a full depletion but just kind of you know low fuel warning like the uh, empty light coming on basically um, yeah,
1: and that's one. That's one of the cool things about that inside analysis that we could do down the road is that it te- It gives you. It gives you a quantity called carb max. So that's basically if you're, you know, if it'll give you an idea of what your what the maximum power you can hold if you can ingest, you know, thirty five hundred calories. Sorry, excuse me, three hundred and fifty calories uh, per hour of carbohydrate. So you probably weren't that far off of that mark. So you're probably dipping into the glycogen stores, but probably not by that much, unless you are massive. Unless you're like VLA max, your anaerobic capacity, glycolytic capacity is massively large.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think that's the case. Like I'm probably fairly middle of the the curve for a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I got in this accident. Um, after that things kind of settled back in and the rest of the race or the rest of the, the bike was pretty uneventful. So what was your
1: bike split on the day? Do you remember?
0: Oh, uh, it was five Oh seven and that included about five minutes stopped for the, um, uh, for the actual, like the crash and everything. So I would have been very, very close to my five hour, uh, time target for, which would have been 36 kilometers an hour. Um, so, I was, I was right on pace despite the power dropping and, and everything because I had a good first lap, but the second lap just kind of fell apart. Um, but still averaged out. And then despite kind of the issues I'd had with power, my run legs weren't feeling that bad. So I got through transition, nothing notable there. Um, I did take a bottle. So i taken another full bottle of F2C that I tucked into my jacket pocket. And I think that actually helped quite a bit. Or not my jacket pocket, but my uh, tri-suit pocket. Okay. And I would periodically drink that. So I'd have like a big swig of it because it was, it was fairly, fairly, uh, strong mixture. So I'd have like a bunch before going to an aid station, then a cup of water, uh, just to kind of balance it out and get the right osmolality. Did you have one um, of those like
1: custom, I- custom pockets, like Langes sewn into your, into your tricep? <laughs> <laughs>
0: no, but what I did was I went to Walmart and I dabbled with buying some pantyhose. Um, (laughs) I definitely want to hear about this. Yeah. So uh, I've gotten this tip from one of the guys I work with, Bailey Knight, who's a a former pro cyclist. Um, And a lot of cyclists will fill pantyhose up with, uh, with ice and then just put it down their Jersey and then it melts. And then you've got this thing that takes up like a super stretchy. So it basically contracts down to nothing. Um, So, this this is the best takeaway mm-hmm. i have from the race um because it got so hot did you,
1: did you do this on the run or or, or, or on the bike
0: i actually meant to do it on the bike but i forgot to bring ice with me the morning of um the one downside of the camper was the freezer wasn't very strong so i tried to freeze all my bottles okay. and they got cold <laughs> <laughs> they, didn't, yeah. they didn't really freeze but oh. so they were just kind of cold that's a heat transfer um, fail yeah, I know, I know. It's the uh, energy efficiency problems with modern equipment. You need those overpowered,
1: <laughs> non-environmentally friendly freezers. Yeah, ozone depleting, free on pumping, free, free on yeah. yeah, 1950s things. Yeah,
0: so, but anyway, um, I, I had a bunch of these set aside, and I, I put them in my special needs bags so that I could fill them up with aid station ice. Oh, smart. Um, yeah, so, and that ended up being... Like a saving grace later on, but I, I'd forgotten to grab it because I was still like I had a bloody knee and I was basically wiping that up when I was going through transition, and I actually forgot to grab the the first pantyhose. Um, and then yeah, so I I was dumping ice down my back at every aid station, yeah. but. Um, it just kind of, it continues going down and it ends up in awkward places. <laughs> yeah. It's
1: yeah, so. just cool. Well, but you know what your groin, your groin is heavily vascularized, right? So it's actually like icing your groin, even though it may not feel super comfortable. It's there, there are worse places for it. Like when you, when they do, you know, when they treat heat stroke victims, they pack armpits and groin with ice. Absolutely. Yeah. Very effective. Uh, just not very comfortable. <laughs> so, it wasn't so much the heat transfer I'm
0: complaining about.
1: Uh, it was yeah, the fact that you have little cubes rattling around your shorts. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Although but, at that point at that point in the race, probably things start to matter less.
0: A little bit, but uh it still ended up being like it was it was just so hot. There was barely anyone running on the run and a, a whole bunch of people were taken off uh by ambulances and it was just it was a suffer fest for everyone. Um yeah. so I wasn't alone. There were a few people who ran it, but I think the fastest marathon was like two fifty nine and then after that it was like three fourteen, which is not a particularly fast run compared to a lot of other races. So Yeah, given the were, talent
1: in a field like that.
0: Yeah, people were definitely suffering. Um so it wasn't just me, which is reassuring. <laughs> mildly reassuring uh, but uh so yeah anyway I made it about eight kilometers at my target pace and then I just overheated and it was a very clear change um because I was feeling like good I felt like I had enough energy I was taking in nutrition and then all of a sudden it was just like my body wanted to stop And it was, there was almost no in between. It was just like a switch being thrown where all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you're overheating and you hit that governor and that's, that's just the end of it. So it it turned into a walk run after that. Um, and the way I tried to manage it was just keeping myself as cool as possible. So I was chewing ice, uh, to take in that extra, essentially thermal energy because ice is very energy dense. Um, so when you swallow it, it goes right into your core. I was putting ice down my back, uh, taking in a ton of cool liquids whenever I could, um and I think that helped, but I was just unable to uh to really keep myself cool. Um but it was funny how it was happening because I was basically bouncing off the limiter where I'd get cold, or not cold, but I'd get below the critical temperature, and then I'd be able to run at my target pace again, which was around five minutes per kilometer, and then I'd overheat about <laughs> a kilometer and a half, two kilometers later, and then I'd have to walk and i wasn't very good i think i was just impatient and i wasn't very good at like dialing back the pace and saying okay if i run at six minutes per kilometer instead of five i can do it for twice as long and actually go faster
1: i was going to say if you're able to be super objective that's the that's the strategy right like you you know you generate less heat at a lower intensity so you can probably you know it's an optimization problem like what's the fastest is it running at five and then walking a bunch or is it running at six as the example that you used and walking much much less
0: Yeah. And that definitely would have been faster and would have been a lot more sustainable. Um, I just didn't do it. Um, so there's no good reason aside from, uh, just, I guess, ego. And like I've said many times, egos don't win races. Egos don't let you run the whole Ironman. Like, so
1: egos don't win
0: races. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was my experience there. But I, like when I got the pantyhose, I filled it up with ice and I draped it down my back and I kind of held it in the mid back area. And then I had the, the end of it just kind of tucked around the front and it sat there. And when you're running, you sound like a bag of rocks, but, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, uh, so I wasn't surprising anyone. And that the, means it's working, Andrew. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the <laughs> squish, squish sound of my wet shoes, <laughs> Uh, also alerted people to my presence, but they weren't moving very <laughs> fast either, so it wasn't really an issue. Um, but yeah, basically it just turned into a bit of a suffer fest. And when the, the sun went down or clouds came out, everyone sped up. And when the sun came back out, um, then it, it just slowed down. So uh, yeah, I, I basically went that way for the rest of the race, trying to keep myself as cool as possible and ended up finishing 11.13. Um, but the last four or five K, um, the sun had actually gone down below the building line. So I was no longer directly exposed to the sun, which meant I was a lot cooler. And as a result, I was able to continue running that at actually a pretty good pace and probably a little bit of extra adrenaline from being at the end of the race. Um, so, but after that, what was really interesting is when the sun had fully gone down, there were a lot of people running. Uh, whereas a couple hours previously, there weren't that many. So everyone was feeling the same thing. Like when when they're cooler, they're faster. Um, so it just reinforces a lot of the um, the discussion we've had previously about keeping your body cool and keeping your core temperature in check.
1: There's one thing that I'd like to add, um, and I can explain why you, well, I think I can explain why you uh, were able to run those last, those, those last several kilometers and then um, everyone else too, is because one of the benefits of uh if you can call it that of overheating and having to run walk or walk completely is that mm-hmm. you spare your glycogen storage right and then if you're taking on nutrition you're replenishing some of it so what ends up happening is walking is very obviously very low intensity pretty much you know very fat fueled typically um not much reliance on glycogen so you know you arrive at the finish line or towards the end of the race with much more of that storage intact. So it's one of those things where you know you're actually you're not stressing your your that side of the metabolism very much when you're when you're racing in super hot conditions because you're operating so much below, you know, your your ability because it's you you're hitting a limiter somewhere else obviously in this case being uh, core temperature so when that that stressor was removed for you and for for all those other people that you talked about um they you and they've realized that like okay we're not so hot anymore and we actually have glycogen stores whereas if it's a cooler race towards the end of the race you got you got nothing or you got very little you know if you managed it well
0: yeah and i'm sure that had a big part of it as well um so it was interesting to see all these kind of applied lessons play out um interesting more than fun i guess because it was not fun to see this <laughs> um but like j- just joking aside like i thought it was a fantastic race fantastic experience and i i really did enjoy it there despite the heat but it was just way too hot for me like 30 degrees my body does not currently react well to
1: that Well, it's it's funny. Like uh, we had a pretty like pretty hot summer towards the end in Toronto, and but then it cooled off like it does in September. Although it's been a really nice September, but it's been you know much cooler. And today we've got a freak heat wave just for one day, and it's thirty six degrees with the humidity. Um, And I went just before we sat down to do this. It was it's like twenty nine and thirty six with humidity. So before we sat down, I went for a little run, and I wasn't planning to run hard. And I was running my like my easy pace. And it felt horrendous, like, and just because I deacclimated from you know being heat acclimatized th- three weeks ago to not, it felt horrible. So, yeah, it, it makes it, it's a it's a very big effect. So, if you want something a little bit
0: further away from that, you can come to Cochrane. Uh, it was minus four <laughs> this morning, and uh, so my my post race, I guess, uh, cool down workout was shoveling my driveway. Um, nice, which was a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a change for my body, so that was not fully expected, not fully welcome.
1: So if you were to uh to come up with three takeaways from this race uh, of things that you would do differently or consider doing differently. Um, what would those three things be the three major things that could have in hindsight made you go faster?
0: I would say planning for contingencies or having a very, very firm nutritional plan and practicing that plan in training as much as you can and as often as you can is absolutely key. So if you plan on racing with frozen bottles, train with frozen bottles to start and see how long it takes to thaw under certain conditions. And, and just like the contingency. So not being able to freeze a bottle, like what do you do in that circumstance? And I didn't really have an answer for that. Um, so something like that is absolutely critical in in nailing your strategy. And maybe in my case, I was a little bit more sensitive to those things than other people might've been, but, uh, yeah, the nutrition strategy, absolutely key. And I've heard so many people say Ironman is just an eating competition and totally, yeah, I think that's absolutely the truth.
1: Um, yeah it's a race to the bottom and it's you know at a certain point you're going to run out of run out of uh of substrate um of fuel and mm -hmm. being on top of your nutrition strategy is absolutely essential and i the other way that i like to think about iron man is it's 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 trying to manage the fuck-ups. you know. There's things are, things are going to go wrong, and sometimes they're going to be your fault, and sometimes they're going to be not your fault, like environmental or or competitor related. <laughs> Jellyfish or but, station crashes. <laughs> yeah, totally right. And so, but think, but you have to understand that things are going to go wrong, or your your bag is going to disappear, which you you have to finish that anecdote still. But um, <laughs> that's, your, right. that's why your your plan has to be robust. And so, I think uh, I'm re- I really like the fact that you put that as number one because, yeah, if you don't have a backup plan you are going to re- live to regret it over the, you know, 10 to 15 hours that you're going to be out there.
0: Well, what's the saying? Uh, failure to plan is planning to fail.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So basically everyone's race will have a problem. Um, mine, mine
1: had multiple. Yeah. So um, Andrew, you've, that was number one was uh, contingency planning for nutrition and practice in your plan. Uh, let's, let's go through two and three uh, quickly. And uh, we do have a listener question that I'd love to get to tonight as well. Uh, Yeah. Number two, keep your cool. Um, so just making sure that you do
0: everything you can to have a plan for keeping your body temperature down. Cause knowing that it was going to be a hot day. Um, I did a few things, but I still screwed it up. Um, I think I would have been in better shape, not perfect shape had I kept cool. And I noticed that, uh, and I should have mentioned this earlier, but I noticed that looking back at my Garmin readings, um, and this was the, an actual head unit, not my watch, which is affected by body temperature. Um, But the the head unit was actually showing I hit this 26, 27 degree threshold, and that's when I started to drop off in power. So it actually Mm. could have been heat related as well. I could have been overheating and just my body doesn't like those higher temperatures. So, um, And maybe that's more explained by the fact that when I stopped for five minutes, like I got that boost again. And then I kind of faded away as my core temperature went up and my body hit that regulator again. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, some, some thoughts there for cooling, uh, having the, the pantyhose, like if, if you can get over the self-conscious aspect of going, you know, for men anyway, for going in to buy women's undergarments, um, which I really didn't care about, (laughs) to be honest, like I didn't, wasn't too bothered by it. Um, so that was like, that was such a good. Concept to do so, you fill that up with ice. You fill it up with whatever you can get to cool you down, and shove it down your suit. Uh, whether you're on the bike, whether you're on the run, even on the swim, you could put it under a uh, swim skin. It'd be pretty tight, but uh, you know you could potentially do something like that for any event to keep yourself cool. So that would be number two. Yep. Uh, and number three. Um, so I kind of I think just looking at Michelle Vesterby's attitude, like her whole keep smiling mantra. Um, I think that's my number three takeaway is just try and stay in good spirits because there are so many people out there who are miserable and, um, like you can tell they're having a bad day, but if you can just manage that smile to a volunteer, uh, that makes their day, they help you out more and they give you that little bit of energy back. And that actually gives you, I think that gives me anyway, a psychological boost, um, and takes you out of that dark place a little bit more.
1: So, Oh man. Yeah, that's perfect. That's that, that I really, really love. Uh, I, that resonates with me. I mean, that's exactly what I said, um, last week when we talked about my race is, uh, talking to people and, and, and feeling grateful for the experience. I think there is so much value in doing that. Both, both as like a kind of preventative measure of like, not, you know, it, it delays the onset of the dark place coming to get you. Um, and as well as, uh, as a management strategy for when you're, already in the hole mentally. And one thing that actually goes along with those warm, fuzzy feelings is, uh, and
0: I thought this was super cool, but the local schools, um, as a writing exercise, they had written encouragement notes that they handed out to all the athletes at check-in. So I got a note from someone, um, saying like, dear athlete, you know, you're going to have an awesome time at this race and I hope you enjoy the community. And like, even though it was just a very generic note, I thought that was a really cool touch. Like I really appreciated that. And I kept the note. Um, cause I thought, you know, what a better way to welcome someone to the community than like a handwritten personal note from, uh, from a local child. So that was super cool. I, I think every race should do that.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. And like, it, it gets everybody, it gets the community more engaged and it has, and then it, 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 it encourages the athletes to engage more with the community and then, you know, spend more money there, spend more time there. Yeah. I think it's a, that's, that's a really smart win-win.
0: Yeah. So I think that wraps up my long and drawn out <laughs> race recap. That was a significant portion of the total race time talking about it.
1: Um, <laughs> well, you know what? There, I think, I think the, the beauty, you know, look, some of these are really fun stories and you're, you definitely had some, some, uh, some key moments, interesting moments, but then my interest in, in reading race reports is like, what can I learn or what can I learn that I can then, you know, pass on to, uh, you know, people, I, people, I coach like this pantyhose the thing this is awesome. I um I'm totally doing this next time I'm running or riding in the heat. Absolutely. And honestly, like aid stations if they start handing out
0: ice in pantyhose, that would be another big step. Um so I I thought it was just like such a good idea and cyclists use it. It's just cyclists don't often talk to triathletes. So uh, <laughs> might, yeah, uh, it, it might <laughs> go both ways or it might yes. not. Um, but uh, yeah, super cool idea. Um, and I was glad that someone had mentioned it to me and I was glad that I tried there, but uh, I would definitely recommend that. And you know, prior to Kona, I'm going to be touching base with Cody and I'm going to tell him if you can put ice in a cooler in either your special needs bag or in your transition bag and you can get that ice and just shove it down the back of your suit as you're going out of transition, you get that two or three minute head start on keeping yourself cool versus everyone else. or even going yeah, Every minute bike. counts. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, it counts
1: in that situation.
0: You're delaying the onset, so instead of putting out a fire, you're doing preventative measures. So you're keeping yourself from catching fire, <laughs> figuratively, yeah. figuratively and literally. Um, but yes, yeah. So that was uh, that was the big thing for me, uh, and that's what I would recommend to anyone who's who's having trouble dealing with the heat. And even if you're going out for training, run well, doing that as well. Super helpful.
1: Well, you should practice it, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, our listener question actually has uh, has to do with heat transfer. Um, it comes from uh, my friend and uh, local Toronto runner, Michael Lynn. He uh, heard our episode on heat transfer and was wondering whether our advice about wearing white on uh, hot days was actually the right way to go. Um, and whether or not it was better to wear black. And uh, his reasoning, uh, based on a study that he sent me, was that black, while black does absorb more uh, radiative heat from the sun, uh, it is also better at um, emitting heat. And so where this makes a difference is if Uh, your body heats up your black garment. Your black garment then will be better um, at radiating that heat to the environment, whereas the white garment will two things well not uh, will originally not absorb the heat from your body so it'll be like uh one of those thermal blankets that you put on after a race and two that it won't emit heat to the environment as efficiently so um on the face this argument has some um i think some merit but uh, Andrew and I respectfully disagree <laughs> yeah so radiation is
0: it's the most challenging type of heat transfer to deal with. Uh, the math gets kind of weird, and that weird math is what what I want to touch on. So there's a couple different things that affect the amount of heat transfer you're radiating. Um, so there's one thing called the solid angle, which is essentially if you think of a beach ball surrounding it, and you were to take something that's irradiating, irradiated, it's irradiated to, like the sun. Um, basically, from on that beach ball, the sun would trace out a certain amount of area that it essentially is coming through. That's uh, you know, that it's entering through, and that's a solid angle. So, that gives you a site factor that's used to calculate the amount of heat transfer on your surface. Um, so, the bigger that site factor, so if you have a very. Large-
1: so, it sounds like, um, you know, if I can summarize, this is a really complex problem uh, that, that takes a lot of things into account, but if we can maybe agree on some high level. High-level generalizations. I know that's a redundant thing to say, but um, (laughs) I, I think that we, when we, when chatted about this a little bit offline, we agreed that in full sun, white is still the way to go, mostly because of that. You know, T to the fourth minus t to the fourth factor the yeah. sun is you know the surface of the sun is very very hot and so there's that's why even though it's very far away and that solid angle is quite small you still feel it so intensely on a on a bright sunny day and so on a on a direct sunday white is still uh in our opinion 100 percent the way to go but um at night let's say or maybe potentially even on an overcast day then you could probably make the case for uh, a darker or a black garment does that sound right Yep,
0: absolutely, because now you're becoming the prime radiator. You're the hottest thing that the surroundings can see. So now you're you're the sun that's radiating right. heat outwards. And if you increase that em- emissivity from, say, 90% to 98%, then now you get almost a 10% bump, bump in the amount of heat transfer that you're doing. But at the temperatures we're dealing with, uh, and this is where the math kind of gets a little bit more in-depth, but uh, because we're not dealing with temperature difference, we're dealing with the absolute temperature raised to, to the power of 4, if you've got a temperature of, say, well, I'll, I'll deal with Celsius, but it's meant to be in Kelvin. But um, same say, it's same. Yeah. Yeah. Close, enough. close yeah, enough. yeah. So uh, 25 degrees radiating something that's 24 degrees, you've got 25 raised to the power of four uh, minus 24 raised to the power of four, not one degree, which is a temperature difference raised to the power of four. So that heat transfer would be a lot lower than if you've got a million to the raised to the power of four. Minus you know nine hundred ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine raised to the power of four. That difference actually becomes quite large, meaning there's a lot of heat transfer driven. Even though the temperature difference is the same, now the radiation is a very significant portion of that. Where at the temperatures we're used to, um, it just becomes relatively insignificant. And yes, anyone who's listening that does know that's supposed to be in Kelvin. So twenty five should be two ninety eight. Just clearing
1: that up just making sure you dot your eyes so i'm going to summarize what andrew said again because that's kind of my job here (laughs) a self self self-imposed job um keeping me on track yeah if if there is no sun the component of radiative heat transfer is either into your body let's say you're in the hot desert where the sun has warmed up the desert now it's or in the lava fields of, of hawaii let's say um if there's no sun or certainly no direct sun the components of radiative heat transfer are actually quite small compared to the other forms of heat transfer, specifically evaporation um, and convective heat transfer, especially on the bike. So the radiative heat transfer is quite small. So the the potential advantage of wearing a black garment is small, but the potential advantage of wearing a white garment in full sunlight is quite large. So that's why I think we still stick with our with our white garment um, recommendation, and the other thing that Michael's um, uh, Michael's article that he sent me pointed to was that uh, wearing a white garment is is sort of like an insulator um, for the body. That there's there's not enough heat transfer between the skin and the garment itself. Maybe in like. You know, if this was a large garment where there was space between the garment and the skin, I would maybe uh, agree with that—that that radiation plays a role. But in the skin-tight, you know, uh, race kit that that we all wear for for cycling and and triathlon, um, radiation is a very small part of the heat transfer between the skin and the and the garment itself. Most of it is probably through um, you know direct conduction because the the two the two fabric skin surfaces are in contact, or through through, um, some kind of uh, con- fluid convection from the sweat moving from the skin to to the garment and then dispersing through the garment. So again, radiative heat transfer there would be a very small component of the whole heat transfer formula, which is of course um, conduction, convection, and radiation all put together.
0: Excellent summary. <laughs> Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. It's, um, yeah, it does get a little bit more complicated under certain circumstances, but generally speaking, if you use kind of a, a real life example, if you're standing in the sun wearing a black shirt, it's going to feel hot. If you're wearing a white shirt, it's going to feel a lot cooler to be wearing that. And that's just a reflection that that feeling is just a reflection of how much heat you're absorbing on the surface.
1: Cool. Um, that's, I think that will do it for us. Andrew, we, uh, we got through your race. We got through this, uh, this listener question, uh, solid episode. I
0: think there was some useful lessons there, but, uh, some interesting ones as well. <laughs>
1: so, yeah, no, I think so. I, I think there was a lot to take away. If nothing else, that that pantyhose, I'm I'm gonna raid my uh, my wife's underwear drawer now.
0: <laughs>
1: bringing bringing more skin
0: skin tight clothing into the world of triathlon.
1: Yes, perfect. Although not meant to be worn as clothing.
0: Well, it's up to you.
1: <laughs> for, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we don't, we don't. You know, it's all good. Um, <laughs> Andrew, do you have anything to to share with our listeners as far as uh, what you're up to or what Four Eyes is up to? Oh, what I'm up to. Uh, so I am
0: heading to Kona next week, actually. Oh, uh, exciting. Yeah. So much more radiative heat transfer that I'll be experiencing <laughs> Not talking about um, – but uh, yeah, if, if there's any suggestions that people have about uh, activities to do there or just things for the podcast, not so much like personal activities, that like you should go here and check out this snorkeling spot. Um, although that would be appreciated too. Um, but if, if anyone has ideas for things that they'd like me to cover, well, I'm on site there i'm going to be busy with the expo booth that we have set up but uh in general um if anyone listening is going to be in kona i would love to meet you and talk to you so feel free to stop by i'll be at the four eyes booth in the expo there um cool. but yeah hopefully i'll have some interesting kind of pro race reports to go along with it and uh i know cody's going to be busy for the week leading up but i'll see if i can touch base with him very quickly before the race i might not get a recording but uh i'll at least get some of his thoughts and feelings going into into the race.
1: That'd be awesome. Yeah. Um he's he's one of those guys that we should have on the show, but obviously after the big dance. Yes. And I'm
0: I'm respecting his need for uh focus right now, so I don't want to bug him with, with a whole bunch of interview requests. And uh and hopefully his time will be very consumed by interview requests after the race because he did well. So let's hope that's the case.
1: Yeah, fingers crossed for him for sure. Um, On the X3 side, uh, if you live in Toronto, especially in the East End, uh, we will be starting a group strength training session. Um, So if you are interested in that, probably kicking off in early November, so in about a month's time, just uh, reach out to me through any of my social channels or on the website, and uh, I'll fill you in with all of the details. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. And uh, if you like us, tell your friends, rate us and review us on iTunes, and uh, have an excellent day.
0: Thanks, everyone.